You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to Domecast, uh, the political podcast on North Carolina state government. I'm Jordan Schrader, hosting this week, and with me is a big group, Will Doran, Lauren Horsch, Colin Campbell, and two newcomers to Domecast. Uh, first of all, Rashan Aish is our new fact-checking fellow at the NNO. Uh, she's fresh off an internship with the NNO and now joining us uh, for a full year as part of our North Carolina fact-checking project. So welcome, Rashan. And also Carly Brousseau, also somewhat of a newcomer to the NNO, uh, investigative reporter, data reporter, uh, who's joining us to talk a little bit about Silent Sam, which is the big news of the week. Um, so let's start with Silent Sam. Carly, uh, you were there uh, before and after the statue came down. And uh, to put this in a little bit of context, uh, after more than 100 years, the statue on UNC's campus was taken down uh, by a, a coordinated effort. And uh, there's been a lot of political fallout since with politicians and uh, the university system weighing in on what should happen. Uh, but what was, it, uh, what was it like there that night in Chapel Hill? I showed up at the protest in front of the post office around 7, and I estimated at the time that there were about 200 to maybe 300 people there at various times, and it was kind of a mixed group. There were some people who were very clearly students wearing UNC t-shirts. There were some people who were clearly professors, um, a bunch of young people um, from like a variety of backgrounds. And there were a bunch of speeches by um, community members, graduate students, including Maya Little. Uh, Maya Little sort of kicked it off, and she's a history grad student at UNC whose name um, became very widely known when she um, covered Silent Sam with her blood and red paint some time ago as an act of protest, saying that she was contextualizing the statue. So this is, um, she is facing some criminal charges related to that and had a hearing earlier in the day and she kind of um, opened her comments as I heard them um, with that saying the, that the court date, that the trial had been continued to um, October. And so did so, this kind of start off as a rally in support of her? Um, I think it was partly a rally in support of her. That was part of the marketing material, um, but it was also broader than that, just sort of, um, I think, sort of, um, bringing the debate to the wider student um, population at the beginning of the school year as well. And in follow-up to a rally last year, which um, many people felt like the police um, handled a little bit aggressively. So I think it was a continuation of that idea too. So then what happened? So then um, they um, marched across the street over to McCorkle Place where Silent Sam is. And um, on the way, they brought all sorts of banners. There had been some banners up against the wall of the post office on these very, very long uh, bamboo poles, um, in addition to banners that people were holding. And on the way over, there was like a little bit of a scuffle, kind of approaching the, um, the statue, and then uh, some smoke bombs went off, and I think a lot of people thought, oh my gosh, is this, is this tear gas? This happened kind of fast, but it wasn't. They were, they were smoke bombs. I'm not sure who, 
who threw them. Um, and then protesters quickly um, surrounded the statue and uh, used those bamboo poles to erect a kind of alternative monument that actually surrounded Silent Sam. So you could just see his little head poking out the top. And they lashed the bamboo together with, I think, like um, caution tape or something. Also some um, zip ties, those plastic zip ties. Um, and then there was a lot of chanting. I mean, it kind of morphed over time. But and meanwhile, the police were taking basically a hands-off approach, right, which is a little bit in contrast to what has happened in the past. Yeah, I wasn't there last year, but I did, of course, watch video and um, look at photos from it. And there were not the metal barriers that there had been um, in previous years. Protesters were allowed to approach the statue, get up close to it. And police stayed mostly to the sidelines. Um, and also, I thought it was interesting they stayed to the sides and kind of behind the statue. They were not in front. There were no photos that you could take of, of the police officers with like Silent Sam's face. Um, and it seemed to be mostly university police um, closer to the protesters with Chapel Hill police standing further away. So um, then what? There's people kind of dispersed, right? Yeah, at a certain point, about like 9.15, there was, um, well, so immediately prior to this time, they had um, linked arms around the statue. And um, then there was a period where it was kind of like a dance party. And you could see everybody, like uh, several people had gone away. The crowd was getting a little bit smaller. Police seemed to be relaxing, like taking off their rubber gloves, kind of, you know, talking to each other a little bit more. And then suddenly, the protesters around the statue started um, leaving, like in a kind of big, um, parade, almost the way that they had come over. And so it seemed it seemed like it was over. There was a little bit of a scuffle in, in front where um, there was a conflict that I couldn't hear the whole of, but it was de-escalated. I thought it was interesting. Um, the person on the anti-fascist side was telling the person on the, like, Silent Sam defending side that, um, you know, he was, a, he was a veteran too, and, and, you know, they had to put put the past behind them. And so that kind of, when that de-escalated, a lot of people left, including myself. Um, and then, <laughs> and then the statue came down, as we've all seen the footage of. Um, and, and I came back and sort of watched them uh, move it away. What was the reaction among the, the crowd? Like? I mean, it seemed ecstatic at from what I can tell from the video, again, not having been there immediately, it seemed like people were stomping on the statue. They sort of buried its head in the mud a little bit. And um, police didn't take a super hands-on approach and just kind of like tried to keep everyone safe, but, but weren't really forcing people away immediately. And then you, uh, you saw it get loaded into it, the statue get loaded into a truck eventually uh, and uh, carried off to what, an undisclosed location, I guess. Undisclosed to me, yeah. yes. <laughs> um, and I'm we, not sure. And so what happens next? We haven't really heard. Um, there's no word yet. Some lawmakers want it put back up. Um, and I guess we don't know what's going to happen, uh, what's going to happen next. Um, meanwhile, some lawmakers, uh, Phil Berger, Tim Moore, the leaders of the legislature, have been putting out statements um, denouncing mob rule and talking about rule of law uh, in the wake of all this. Um, 
anything that's been notable in the reaction? Um, well, one thing I noted was that um, uh, Governor Cooper came out with a statement and said, you know, he, he recognizes that, you know, people are, you know, upset over the Confederate memorials, all of that, um, but that, you know, violence like this isn't the answer. Um, so maybe not, you know, quite as, as strong of a statement in support of the protesters as the, as the protesters might have liked uh, from the Democratic governor, um, but he's, he's clearly trying to kind of thread the middle on this. And, and he had previously asked UNC to take the statue down. Uh, I think it was last year or maybe early in 2018. Um, but the state law is so kind of strict and specific about, you know, the very limited situations which you can take a statue down. And so UNC never really followed through with that because they didn't think they had the, the legal authority to take it down. Um, and so then you had these protesters come and take things into their own hands. Right, there's a 2015 law that uh, gives very uh, limited ability to take it down and you have to go through this state historical commission and there has to be a request and then uh, they can only take it down if there's very specific uh, uh, circumstances. And actually we saw that play out this week, not with Silent Sam, um, but with the three Confederate monuments on the Capitol campus. Um, the historical commission has been uh, basically talking for about a year about what to do about those ever since Governor Cooper asked for those to be moved um, to a battleground, a Civil War battleground in um, Johnston County. And uh, so the Historical Commission met this week to finally make their decision. And Lauren, what did they, uh, what did they come up with? Well, the, the Historical Commission essentially adopted recommendations from a study committee that had met to determine what needs to happen with three Confederate monuments on the grounds of the state capitol here in Raleigh. Um, and there were various options, you know, take them down, move them to Bentonville, I think is where they wanted to move them, um, or, you know, leave them up or, you know, leave them up and add context. And the the commission or the study committee eventually, you know, decided that, okay, we're gonna, let's, let's recommend keeping the statues up, but let's add, you know, some more context to it. Um, so, eventually we will be seeing um, some added language or context to the statues um, about slavery in the Civil War to kind of help understand the full picture of what happened. And then they also recommended that uh, the state build a new statue on the Capitol grounds, um, recognizing the contributions of African Americans, because there is no statue to um, African American residents in North Carolina on the Capitol grounds. I mean, there's one statue of a woman on the ground, and it's actually one of the statues under question by the Historical Commission, and that was um, a statue to Confederate women and their their role they played in the war. So. This was a pretty contentious meeting. Um, well, I think they thought it was gonna be more contentious. I mean, when I got to the General Assembly yesterday morning, there were just cop cars lined up on that block um, at the meeting location in the State Archives building. Um, and you know, there were police outside checking people in. Uh, they, there was no parking allowed on that street. Um, one woman was eventually removed uh, by police. Her name was Ashley Popio, Popio? I'm sorry if I butchered that and you're listening, Ashley. Um, but she stood up uh, kind of during a break in the meeting and was trying to read a statement off of her phone um, about you know why the statues need to be uh, taken down. Uh, and she was removed by police. And I think she was charged. I don't remember the what citation she had exactly. I think it was disturbing. Yeah, some sort of disorderly Dis conduct charge. Yeah. But she was taken off site and then um, cited and released. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like legislators basically greeted those recommendations positively. 
but um, it's still uncertain, right, what's going to happen with these recommendations. We don't really um, have a clear way that this will be done. There has to be money raised yeah. for any kind of new statues that are put up. Um, so it all seems like it's it's a little uncertain. Yeah, and of course the law um, preventing different branches of government or local governments from taking down their Confederate statues is still intact, still enjoys uh, seemingly widespread support among uh, legislative leadership, even though uh, Democrats and uh, Governor Roy Cooper have been calling uh, for that law to be repealed. Um, so that's an issue. Um, I hadn't heard the latest on the NC Freedom Park plan, which sort of uh, ties into the recommendations that the commission had about uh, putting up new statues. There's a plan for, and it has been in the, in the uh, planning stages for, for many years now uh, for a park honoring the contributions of African-Americans to the state. I think it would be located fairly close to the legislative building, not uh, immediately adjacent to the state capitol park where the Confederate statues are located. Um, but they recently, I think last year, hired uh, famous architect Phil Freelon from Durham to do some of the design work on that. And at last I heard, they were hoping to raise enough uh, money, mostly through private dollars, to uh, get that open by 2020. But we'll see if that, uh, that actually happens and uh, has what it takes to, to get off the ground. Okay. Well, um, by the time you're listening to this, we may or may not have a special session of the legislature called. Uh, but uh, we are waiting to learn what's going to happen. And lawmakers would be coming back if they do decide uh, to come back for a special session to uh, deal with two constitutional amendments um, that have been struck down um, by a three-judge panel, I believe. Um, Will, uh, what are these amendments and uh, how did they uh, come to be um, struck down by a court? Right, so this is kind of the continuation of the themes that we've seen ever since uh, Roy Cooper was elected in 2016 with the legislature trying to consolidate more uh, government power in the legislative branch away from the executive branch. Uh, one of the amendments uh, deals with a number of appointments to various boards, commissions, et cetera, inside of the, that the executive branch, the governor normally would have power over it would shift those powers to uh, the legislature and also uh, um, uh, it, it's called the bipartisan uh, elections amendment. It would also make some changes to uh, the way that the, the Board of Elections and Ethics Enforcement is set up. Um, and then the other amendment uh, deals with uh, judicial vacancies, which is a pretty uh, rare occurrence, but you know, whenever there's a, a vacant judge seat anywhere uh, in the state, the governor can appoint a new judge uh, to hold that at least until the next election since we elect all of our judges here. Um, and then that would shift that over to uh, the legislature as well away from the governor and the uh, kind of the the kicker on that one has also had this kind of uh, controversial clause in it uh, regarding uh, the governor's veto power. Um, it said that the governor wouldn't be able to veto these judicial election bills. Um, but some people thought that that would actually give the General Assembly power to just do away essentially with the governor's veto entirely, um, which you know obviously would be a massive change to the way that state government operates. And so you know, some, some of the Republican leaders in the legislature said, oh, no, 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 that was not our intent when we were doing this. Um, but a lot of the Democratic legislators said, well, that's absolutely what this would do. Um, so there's kind of this controversy over that, you know, would it, would it not? But 
So the common the thread here is basically taking away the governor's powers, exactly. and so Cooper and so then Cooper sued, sued over it yeah. uh, because he does not want to lose these powers. Um, and actually, all five uh, living former governors came out uh, in opposition to these two amendments, um, both Democrat and Republican, and said, you know, hey, we think these are bad ideas. The legislature doesn't need this power. Uh, you know, I mean, just for context, North Carolina already has a, a fairly weak executive branch compared to a lot of other states, um, and so I, I feel like they felt that it should not become even weaker. Um, and that that's where I don't think we've seen such bipartisan support from the, the former governors on, on anything. Uh, but they came out on this. And then uh, it appears that, uh, yeah, this, this three-judge panel agreed with Cooper as well and handed him a win on this lawsuit and uh, took these two amendments off the ballot. So we we were going to have six amendments up for uh, voters to decide on in November. Now we're down to four. Obviously, the legislature can appeal this, um, so I do not think that this is over yet. Um, and and as you mentioned, maybe they'll you know maybe they'll skip the appeals process, try to just come back for a special session. Right now, everything is just kind of up in the air. It'll it'll probably all end up being decided by the state supreme court. And um, in fact, we saw um, Dallas Woodhouse, the executive director of the Republican Party. Um, raise the possibility that maybe state Supreme Court justices could be impeached if they ruled uh, to take constitutional amendments off the ballot. He said it would trigger a constitutional crisis if um, the courts told voters they couldn't vote on things that the legislature had um, put on the ballot. And uh, he said there hadn't been any discussions in the legislature that he knew of, um, and legislative leaders had said there really hadn't been any discussions about that either. Um, but that threat is now uh, out there. Um, but meanwhile, the, the court had, did say that the um, ballot language was uh, misleading, essentially. And so, uh, Colin, what might happen now in the legislature to, to deal with this if it doesn't get uh, uh, handled through the court system? Yeah, so the uh, three-judge panel that ruled on this uh, earlier this week basically gave the legislators two options on these two amendments that uh, they essentially struck down the ballot language on. One is to uh, pursue their appeal options and try to get a more favorable decision from a higher court. Um, it looks like the uh, Notice to appeal has been filed with the Court of Appeals, but probably could get expedited, most likely will get expedited uh, to the Supreme Court if legislators move forward. Now, uh, spokesman for Phil Berger, I think, uh, told reporters yesterday uh, that that sort of, uh, they're not sure they're going the appeal route, but they want to keep that option open. Uh, the other option provided by the courts is to uh, simply come back into a session and pass different uh, ballot language that addresses the uh, concerns about misleading or inaccurate ballot language that was voiced in the court ruling. Uh, so legislators uh, is, have confirmed that they are considering going into a special session. Um, no sense of what the timing would be. Uh, by the time you guys listen to this, we could either have a, a formal call to a special session or we could have you know, let lawmakers ruling it out. A lot of it seems to depend on a numbers game. Um, you know, it is the end of August. Uh, a lot of people, myself included, are uh, about to go on vacation or are currently on vacation. Uh, so sometimes it can be hard to get everybody back to the building. And in order to uh, pass a constitutional amendment bill, you have to have a three-fifths majority of the entire chamber. Um, so 72 votes in the House, 30 in the Senate in order to get those bills passed. So if they don't have those numbers, uh, they're not really able to uh, go back in and, and tweak this ballot language. Um, all of this, of course, comes up against a time crunch, which I think is a lot of the, the strategy behind whether you do a appeal in court or whether you uh, essentially uh, let the lower court win and uh, change the ballot language um, because we've got a deadline, and Lauren's written some about this as well. Um, of uh, originally September 1st to get the ballot, or currently 
uh, on hold until September 1st to uh, finalize ballots. So they can't be printed uh, this week as would normally be the case under state law. Uh, that's ultimately delaying the process of starting absentee voting by mail, um, which they're allowed to do. Uh, so normally it's 60 days before the election that the absentee ballots go out. Um, that's not going to happen this year uh, because of these lawsuits, but uh, it does have to happen at least 45 days before the election because that's a federal rule. Uh, so the concern, I think, uh, among the different parties in these lawsuits is uh, how are you most likely to win and get ballots printed uh, on a fairly short time frame? So lawmakers, I think, are worried, you know, if they go to the Supreme Court and they lose, which is possible, the Supreme Court does have a uh, Democratic majority, um, then is there enough time to then hold a special session and rewrite the ballot language then before the State Board of Elections has to start printing the ballots? Because if that hasn't been taken care of and the courts have uh, struck it down, uh, then what you end up with is uh, ballots that go out without these two constitutional amendments, even as the lawsuits may proceed on that. Uh, so it's all uh, sort of a race against the clock uh, at this point for, for all parties to this to try to uh, get the most optimal um, scenario for, for the way they want these amendments to go down. There's a bunch of lawsuits and uh, that all affect the election, and we can help you keep those straight. So we've got these two on the constitutional amendments. Uh, there's uh, also one dealing with uh, the Supreme Court candidate uh, that was targeted by a law, which we've talked about quite a bit on past Domecasts. Um, and then, Will, there's also one we haven't talked a whole lot about, which involves uh, this third party uh, who also had some of its candidates targeted by a specific law. Um, and they've won their case, too, at least at the uh, first level of, uh, of the courts. So tell us about that. Right. Uh, so the Constitution Party uh, was officially recognized here in North Carolina for the first time this June. And when they officially formed, started recruiting candidates uh, to run in the elections this November, uh, several of the candidates that they recruited had been people who were formerly Republicans, formerly Democrats, who had run uh, for various seats around the state in the primaries earlier this spring and had lost. And so, you know, obviously they still believe in their message, and so they were seeking a, a new vehicle to, uh, you know, to campaign on that message and to try, you know, get elected into politics. Uh, you know, I, I think two are running for seats in the state legislature. One is running for a county commission seat. And obviously the... Uh, and, and there are other candidates running for the Constitution Party, but these three people uh, had sued because there's a state law, kind of colloquial, known as the sore loser law, that says if you lose a primary, you can't run in the general election. Um, but that law actually was just overturned uh, yesterday. In federal court, a judge ruled uh, kind of along the same logic, same legal theory as the Chris Anglin lawsuit that you mentioned earlier, that this law that the General Assembly passed retroactively applied to these candidates, and that essentially violated their constitutional rights. Um, so the lawyers out there would say it's unconstitutional as applied. You know, it's not necessarily unconstitutional in every case, but as it applies to these specific candidates, it, it can't go into effect. So they will get to go back on the ballot, um, again, as long as there's not an appeal. Uh, th this lawsuit uh, wasn't against the legislature itself, but against the Board of Elections. Um, so they have the option to appeal that uh, in federal court. And so, yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll see. Um, August was a bad month for the General Assembly in court. You know, they, they lost the, the amendments lawsuit with Cooper. They lost this lawsuit. General Assembly wasn't party to the Constitution Party lawsuit, but it, 
you know, it was about a law that the General Assembly had just passed this June, and then the General Assembly lost the Chris Anglin uh, lawsuit, which I just checked uh, yesterday with Chris Anglin's uh, political team. Uh, they still hadn't gotten, um, uh, you know, any sort of appeals uh, from the legislature on that, so it's kind of a waiting game at this point, you know, like, like Colin was talking about earlier with the timing, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's a, a case of intentionally dragging their feet or just trying to come up with the best legal theories. I mean, obviously, writing an appeal is a huge process. Tons of work goes into that. So, okay. But in the meantime, all of these things have the, the ballots, you know, tied up. And all of these judges at the trial court level had said, you know, hey, you know, no one can can print these ballots and, until this is all settled. Yeah, I'm not sure how many early bird voters are out there who want to ask to vote by mail a solid two months ahead of the election on the first day possible. But if you're one of those folks, this is not a good year for you. It's <laughs> mostly going to be overseas military voters, Yeah, right, I think that that's what's affected. And so I, I haven't seen any uh, analysis on how many votes and from where are typically cast in that early period and whether this has any sort of type of suppression sort of effect on how many people cast um, votes by mail and cast absentee ballots when the time period in order to do so uh, becomes compressed. But I, you have to imagine there are at least a few people who uh, might have had the capacity to do that at the beginning of September and maybe schedules and lives uh, prevent them from doing it later on in the process. And we should actually mention before we move on that there's actually a fourth lawsuit that we haven't even talked about today also about the ballot, which is that the NAACP and some environmental groups had sued over the same two amendments that Cooper just won on, uh, the taking away the governor's powers, and then also two other amendments, one on voter ID and one on the uh, lowering the, the maximum cap for the state income tax rate. And they uh, announced yesterday that they were filing an appeal to try and kind of latch on to, to Cooper's victory, essentially, and get their other two, the, the voter ID and the income tax. Yeah, the three-judge panel had ruled off. that uh, those two were not misleading in terms of how the ballot questions were worried. They, the court found that um, those were pretty clear about what those amendments actually do, so they're, they're fine to go ahead, but the right. NAACP and these other groups are contesting that decision and hoping to get a, a better ruling at the Supreme Court, so that could also affect it. So we could, we're, we're looking at a ballot that either has six amendments, four amendments, or two amendments, depending on how all this goes down in the next week or two. So as it stands right now, if this court ruling holds, then we will have a um, voter ID constitutional amendment on the ballot. And Rashawn, you've been looking into this because uh, there was a claim by the Civitas Institute, the conservative uh, think tank here in Raleigh, um, that basically said uh, Amazon, and it was, was, first of all, it was responding to activists saying that Amazon and Apple should not come here, they should boycott North Carolina. Um, because of this voter ID requirement. So Civitas said uh, that uh, Amazon and Apple already do business in lots of states with voter ID, so this is ridiculous. So you wanted to zero in on this idea that Amazon and Apple are already in states with voter ID, uh, and you wrote a fact check on it. So what did you end up finding? Um, I found that Amazon and Apple are, in fact, already in states with voter ID, and that um, in some cases, like with Arizona, um, but according to the National Conference of State Legislators, some of the strictest voter ID laws in the country, they move there um, or put fulfillment centers, which is kind of where they have all the stuff that they ship out to customers and where sellers send their stuff. Um, some of the strictest voter ID laws in the country, and they've opened multiple fulfillment centers there. And in some cases, they go there the same year voter ID law was passed, which I think was the case in Iowa. 
And um, on a bigger scale, because you know, obviously the conversation is about headquarters and campuses, respectively from Amazon and Apple coming to Raleigh. Um, Apple opened a campus in Austin after the voter ID law had been there, and they still did amendments and changes, and even according to the Austin Chamber of Commerce, um, Apple continued to expand in 2016 through 2018 when there was a controversial Texas voter ID law amendment that would have made it even stricter um, going around. So they're already there, and they're all, they even have like a data center and a fulfillment center, like an Apple data center in North Carolina and I believe three fulfillment centers in North Carolina for Amazon with a fourth one coming to Garner. Right. So, so the fact that they passed a voter ID law in 2013 that was um, pretty strict did mm -hmm. not keep them from coming here, in, at least in a smaller way. Um, and, and maybe all this suggests that, that if those companies are making decisions about where to locate, they're probably not going to uh, do it based on who has what um, laws about voter access. Yeah, I believe nine of the U.S. states on the shortlist for the Amazon headquarters have voter ID laws on some level. So it's not, doesn't seem like too big of a factor. All right. Well, I think it's time to take a break unless anybody has anything else. And we'll come back with headliner of the week. Stay with us. Before today's headliner of the week, we wanted to share a quick message. Six years ago this month, a reporter named Austin Tice, who was freelancing for McClatchy newspapers and other media outlets, was detained while on assignment in Syria. On this anniversary, our one McClatchy company motto means more to us than ever as we at Domecast and the News and Observer stand firmly with the Tice family and hope for Austin's safe return. Here's his mother, Deborah, describing the battle to bring him home. We never would have imagined that we weren't going to know anything about where he is or who's holding him. How's that even possible? Across the country this month, McClatchy is raising flags and banners in Austin's honor, helping to bring attention to his plight. You can help too by tweeting with the hashtag FreeAustinTice or sharing a Facebook post in his name as we keep Austin in our thoughts today and every day. And now for Headliner of the Week. 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 Who's hot? And we're back with Domecast, and now it's time for Headliner of the Week, where we decide the most important or intriguing person, place, or thing, or idea, uh, or general what have you, in this week's news. So let's start with Colin Campbell. Colin, who's your headliner? Well, we hadn't talked a lot about uh, the uh, crazy week in national politics, because we had almost equally crazy week in state politics. Um, but uh, we did get a little bit into that on sort of the local level uh, on Monday. Uh, Congressman David Price, the longtime Democrat uh, from here in the Triangle, uh, stopped by the NNO to uh, meet with the editorial board, and I sat in on that meeting, um, and there were some interesting statements made. Uh, most interestingly, I thought about the uh, impeachment question uh, for Democrats. If they're able to take the majority in Congress, would they pursue uh, impeaching President Trump? Um, and that's been sort of a thorny issue for Democrats because they're uh, on the one hand, uh, their base, I think, would very much like to impeach President Trump, but on the other hand, uh, they're concerned about energizing Trump supporters who 
perhaps might be more likely to turn out in the election um, if it seems like it's a threat to President Trump's future in office. Um, so we uh, asked David Price what he thought about that, um, and it, his answer was kind of interesting. He really didn't rule out the possibility uh, of impeachment. So when we asked about it, his quote, exact quote was, I expect that we will confront it. At a minimum, we're going to confront the need to investigate a great many things. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how that uh, com uh, comment gets played up by Republicans, if at all. Um, certainly, uh, Price is sort of in an interesting boat because uh, he's an incumbent in a very, very safe district, so he can kind of say what he wants um, and um, still uh, win re-election. But then you have several other Democrats running across the state in much more uh, swing districts. Um, Kathy Manning, the Democrat running against Ted Budd, uh, Dan McCready, the uh, Democrat running against Republican Mark Harris in the Charlotte area, all of whom are running much more towards the middle. So I highly doubt you're going to get that kind of impeachment comment um, out of them anytime soon. But for for saying what uh, seems to be on many Democrats' minds, uh, David Price is uh, my pick this week. Okay, David Price, and that comes before all of the craziness in the national news, where uh, uh, Trump's former lawyer had, had uh, you know, said in court that uh, somebody had directed him to make a campaign violation uh, in a way that was very clear. He's talking about Trump, so. Uh, We'll see how that plays out. So um, Carly Brousseau, who's your headliner of the week? Well, I've already mentioned her, but I feel like I have to give another plug to Maya Little. Um, I think it's interesting to have a protest led by a historian and the way that activists have brought in the history of UNC and the history of, um, of protest and of the Confederacy, I think has been fascinating. It feels like a really informed, uh, like a kind of deeper debate than you often see, so. My a little. And they often bring up the dedication of Silent Sam mm -hmm. um, and the sort of racist statements made by the um, one of the people who was speaking at the at the dedication. So mm -hmm. they, they go all the way back to what is that? Uh, 1800, 1900, uh, 1913. 1913. Okay, to the dedication of the statue. Um, so a little in the hat for headliner of the week. Lauren Horsch, who's your headliner of the week? So my headliner is not a person, but more so maybe an action or a thought, um, impeachment. So we talked a little bit already about uh, Dallas Woodhouse's call to potentially you know, impeach Supreme Court justices and all that, and we've heard so much about impeaching justices in West Virginia over the past couple of weeks and months too. Um, but our colleague Lynn Bonner uh, did kind of a, a dive into, you know, whether or not impeachment of justices has happened before in North Carolina. And actually, it has. Um, a little long ago, 1901, we did have two justices that were um, impeached, but they were eventually acquitted by the state Senate, and so they stayed on the bench. Um, but I just think it's funny that over, not really funny, I guess that's a bad way to describe it. Um, but it's interesting to see how discussions ha of impeachment have increased over maybe the past two or three years. Uh, Longtime listeners of Domecast will remember during the long session, there were talks of impeaching Secretary of State Elaine Marshall, and those died away when Representative Chris Millis uh, resigned his position in the General Assembly. But impeachment, here to stay, gone tomorrow maybe. I don't know. We'll find out. And the, the last time was notable because that was sort of at the start of the um, white supremacy laws that were passed in North Carolina, the Jim Crow laws. And the, uh, the legislature, controlled by Democrats at that point, wanted to get rid of these justices, it seems like, so that they uh, wouldn't strike down their, uh, their Jim Crow laws. And uh, in the end, they were impeached but not removed from office. Um, so impeachment, 
is in the hat for headliner of the week. Will Doran, who's your headliner? I'm going to go with the Board of Elections. Um, obviously, we talked a lot about them today. They're either directly or indirectly involved with all of these various lawsuits going on with the candidates, the constitutional amendments. Like we said, there's one constitutional amendment that might even affect them. So th I think the next couple months are going to be very even busier time than a normal election would be. Um, you know, obviously, if the, the ballots get delayed, that could be a huge problem. Uh, people might be wondering, you know, why does it take so long to print the ballots? Why can't you just kind of, you know, press the button, let the printers go all night, print out however many, you know, millions of copies of ballots you need, and then, you know, that takes a couple of days. But it takes, they say, around a month because they have to do all of this testing and stuff, make sure all the barcodes work, make sure there's no mistakes on the ballots, all that sort of stuff. So if this process has to be rushed, you know, hopefully there's no mistakes or faulty ballots or anything like that. I don't think we're going to have any hanging chad sort of situations, but you know, it, it's the kind of thing that it, it could just compound um, and you know, you know, get complicated. Obviously, we hope that doesn't happen, um, but we'll be writing about it if it does. All right, the Board of Elections in the hat for headliner of the week. Okay, last, Roshan Aish, who's your headliner? The DTH, or the Daily Tar Heel, from UNC Chapel Hill, because they ran into every single issue manageable um, you can imagine on Monday night while trying to report on Silent Sam, they had like this whole issue laid out. It was the first issue of the school year to celebrate the school, and they totally scrapped that. Started from scratch, lightning went out, they lost photo SD cards, had to find new SD cards, and they still got an issue out. They have a late deadline, yeah. apparently. Three hours late. A lot later than our deadline. Yeah. Uh, well, congratulations to the uh, to the student journalists at the Daily Tar Heel um, for uh, responding so well to the Silent Sam news. That's awesome. Uh, so Daily Tar Heel in the hat for headliner of the week. Uh, I'm going to go with my little. Um, there's tons of stories competing for attention this week, but Silent Sam is is the biggest one, and she's at the center of all this. Um, so Carly is our winner this week, and uh, you can look forward to that dome mug on your desk shortly uh, if you don't already have such a prize. Um, and uh, that's it for Domecast this week. Uh, catch us next week. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.